0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Ron Pertie Show. I am your host, Ron Pertie. if you're listening for the first time. And today we have a very special guest, but before we get to him, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Don't forget, all roads point to ron.world. I know it's a weird address, but I'm a weird guy, so it's okay. There you can find the Patreon, you can find the PayPal donation button, and you can even find merch. You can adorn yourself with my logo. Quit being a pervert. It's not like that. You can also listen to old episodes and all sorts of other stuff is there. Blogs, all sorts of cool stuff at ron.world. So head over there when you're not listening to this. Or while you're listening to this. I don't care what you do in your free time. My guest this week is not is probably the one person who is is like the oldest friend of mine in the broadcasting world. I've known this guy since the, the age-old days of Stickam. If you guys remember Stickam, you're old too. Just, just go, go buy the Corvette, date the twenty-year-old, uh, and and just, and, and just deal with it, ladies and gentlemen. My guest this week is none other than Shaggy Jenkins. Shaggy, thank you so much for being on.
1: Aloha, Ron. How's and it
0: going? It's going, it's going okay. He's over there doing his best dog the Bounty Hunter impersonation in Hawaii. But that's neither here nor there. I actually was. I'm listeners of the show know my mom is up in a rehab because she broke her leg, and the other day I got up there early and sure enough there she is watching Dog the Bounty Hunter. I was like, wow, this guy's still a thing, huh?
1: Yeah, and, and apparently he's been a uh, not a thing in the state of Hawaii for years, and people still watch him. I'm I'm so confused.
0: I don't get it. He actually, b- believe it or not, when I was on Stickam, um. Uh, no, or was that now? I forget if it was either Stickam or Now Live. I think it was Stickam. Uh, I had his PR people and I were in contact. I was going to have him on the show, uh, and then I ha- they sent me a copy of his book, which was god awful. Um, but you know, you and I both know you can't say that to people. Um, but I'm saying it now because he waived on me. He he canceled
1: the night before, so I was oh. like, you mullet-headed, you know. It- yeah, yeah, there's some creative names you could probably give him. I, I actually ran into him and Beth when they came here for a uh, part of that book tour. Uh, they came to Maui, and, you know, it's it's really weird because I actually work around local bounty hunters at that time because, you know, everybody wanted to be one. Yeah. And Maui is a place that people do tend to run to from time to time, myself included. Um, but all these bounty hunters who had went to, like— you know, fall on the altar of <clears throat> Dog and Beth were met with some pretty rude type of actions. I mean, as as far as their show, it always presented them as very loving and stuff, but in person, they were very kind of egotistical. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. And
0: I love how every time you come on this show, we have to bring up Dog. Let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, oh. Now, I know, I know that you were, uh, kind of, um, taken under the wing, uh, or taken under the wing of, rather, um, oh, I can't pronounce her name, um,
1: Hattie Leeper,
0: yes, Hattie Leeper, yeah, Hattie Hattie, yes, and she kind of took you under her wing, and, and, and blossomed you into who you are today, but now here's the thing, um, I, from what, from my vantage point, from where I stand, um, you have always been kind of, I mean, you've had opinions and stuff like that on your shows, but it wasn't until recently, the last couple of years, it seems that you got really political. And I, I was wondering what that, the reason for that was. Okay. Well,
1: um, if you must know, I must play. know, I have
0: to, my listeners demand
1: it. Okay. Okay. Necessity in a single word, necessity. Um, Hattie, you know, since we, we brought her up kind of gave me a radio mission versus radio training when she brought me in, uh, the field and stuff and started, you know, getting me trained. She would tell everybody, Hey, look, if you're going to do this and you're going to do this serious, you need to see me. And, and, you know, a couple of people were just like, eh, whatever, whatever, whatever. I was one of those rare people. I was like, okay, like, honestly, I I really think that I want to do this the rest of my life what is it that you need to tell me? And she says, this isn't just empty air. Fill it with something. So, you know, I, I went 20-something years being like an entertaining guy and trying to fill that void that people have in their day of somebody like a Mr. Rogers, looking at them and saying, hey, you're unique, you're special, where you're from matters. We should just enjoy each other's company. I went from that to noticing that Well, right around, I'd say, probably 2012, during that election, things started to get a little bit more racially tinged. We had the Tea Party coming out in 2010, and they were already kind of a right-leaning group. But in 2012, the the birthers and and all of these motions that were set up by this television host named Donald Trump started to kind of take a dangerous turn. And when I say dangerous turn, I mean like my own family started to get indoctrinated into this far right kind of pro-white people society brainwashing. And and nobody in my family was ever like that growing up. So I started seeing a problem, a very big problem of not just people – not realizing that, you know, <clears throat> the times they are a changing, as Bob Dylan says it, but that right. the times are changing back into times that we progressed out of. I mean, four to five decades of social progress was starting to get rolled back in the early 2000s. And then in the 2012 election, we started to see a lot more of civil liberties getting rolled back along racist and socioeconomic lines. And, and when I thought back to what Hattie told me of making the air matter, of not filling it with with emptiness, it was like, okay, you know what? We've done the entertaining thing, and that's that's paid my bills. That's led to a very cushy lifestyle, I guess you could say. Not really. It's, I've hated so much McDonald's dollar menu over my career. I should be dead or an actual French fry from there. Um well, you but, are kind of greasy and salty, so. Yeah, yeah, and it, the older I get, the saltier I get because that was that was the thing that prompted me to go political. It was like, hey, people listen to me, and I know it's kind of narcissistic, but I did have an audience, and it was like, I think that they're a smart audience, and I think that they'll understand if I if I start talking to them about something that that at least I thought should matter to. All of us. It was where society was going. And that's where we made the jump from entertainment into political talk. Now, was it
0: a gradual change? Because I know we've we've been friends for a while. But there was a period where you were doing your thing and I really wasn't listening because you were just kind of on the radio out there in, in Hawaii. And obviously I'm here in Wisconsin where all we can hear is the wind blowing snow. And... I mean, it was a gradual change. Did you like? Well, here's the new uh, Ziggy Marley.
1: Oh wait, here we me talk about Mitt Romney. Okay, no, this is the way it actually went. So uh, I was on an island station that I had uh, basically turned into the first reggae station in the United States, and we played a lot of reggae music. But the the local audience here, they're they're really just community-oriented, and everybody likes talking about issues and things like that. So, on the morning show, as kind of like this joke bit, and the station was named Q103, we started doing a Q of the day, like a question. And and these questions started off innocent enough, you know, like, which do you prefer, chocolate or vanilla? You know, stupid little morning show stuff. Chocolate. Style. Chocolate. Can yeah. I
0: answer it now? Chocolate.
1: Yeah, okay, you're, you're about 12 years late. But, uh, <laughs>
0: Well, if, if I ate 12-year-old chocolate, I – yeah, I'd be the late Ron Pertee.
1: Mm, God, anybody would. But uh, the, the thing is is that those questions, after a while, um, they started turning into questions about culture. Like is it okay that there's a bunch of people moving into the Hawaiian Islands that don't like Hawaiian culture, which is the indigenous race – of this island, the sovereign kingdom that is still in dispute in international courts. So that was like kind of a strange metamorphosis where this cue of the day went from these cutesy kind of typical morning show flair questions to questions about culture and local politics and, and even national politics. And the more that we progressed this this question into controversial territory or into – you know, everyday civics kind of discussion, the more people went along with it. So you can probably say that the cue of the day on my, my old morning show was the first steps towards saying, no, 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 we'll go political. So after I left, uh, Q103 and went over to public radio at Keku, that was the first thing I, I, I decided it's like, I can't do a show like I did before because come on, that would be a little hokey and a little bit cliche and Nobody wants to be a cliché of themselves, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I totally hear you. That's that's why I continue to do this after 15 years. Yeah,
1: so uh, what I did was I was like, okay, well, why don't we take the one most popular element of that show, which was, at that time, the cue of the day, and let's just flesh that out into what it would be like to do an entire show about questions about society. And the first... Form of my show actually went under the name Maui Matters because it was only here on Maui. This is before our Pacifica Radio deal, and that show kinda did exactly that. It would take these questions that we used to use on the morning show and just turn them into panel talk pieces with local entertainers, local politicians, uh, people of import, thinkers, uh, PAC leaders, 501Cs, you know, charities, and things like that. And the more it progressed, the more we realized that all these local issues had national kind of ties, and that is when, in the summer of 2016, we went from a local show called Maui Matters into a national show through the Pacifica Radio Networks uh, called the Shaggy Jenkins Show.
0: Now, I'm noticing something, and it's it's taken me a long time to realize this, but... I'm noticing that Hawaii, while it's its own state, also, while, while it's a state, not it's its own state, but uh, while it's a state, it also
1: feels very much like it's its own country. Well, that's because it rightfully still is. <clears throat> if you know anything about the, the long and convoluted history of the 50th state, you don't I don't
0: realize- So, So enlighten me, please. This is this is why you're here. I want you, oh. Professor Shaggy, to teach all of the Hawaiis. About Hawaii.
1: Oh, God. Uh, you used our word. Okay, I did. Uh,
0: I'm, 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 I'm. What's the word I'm looking for?
1: I'm uh, uh, cultural appropriating. Oh, you and Gwen Stefani. I Here's am. Hollaback um, girl. Yeah. Ha is the word for breath, and ole is absence. Okay, so ha ole is, is the actual Hawaiian pronunciation. That means without breath. And the reason why is because a traditional greeting among Polynesian indigenous people is to press foreheads to each other and exhale and inhale in unison. In other words, you're sharing the ha or the breath of life. So when English people came over and they weren't familiar with the breath of life, and let's just be honest, if, if you're a Polynesian and you see uh, Europeans, you're thinking, oh, my God, they're so pale. They must be dead and breathless.
2: You would give them a nickname.
1: Uh, okay. Yeah. So it, it it actually just came out as a name of. Well, they look like they are without breath because they are not as dark and virile as us. So, ha, air, er, absence, ole, ha ole. There you go. So that's where that word came from. Uh, the, the the thing is is about and and now everybody kind of slangs it and it's like oh ha ole ha ole. It's like yeah you're you're really screwing up the Hawaiian language in somewhere. There's a ch- There is an elite crying over what is happening. Um, but when it comes to, um, foreign culture here in Hawaii, one, it is, um, from all over the Pacific Rim. Not only do you have the indigenous Hawaiians, but you have Filipinos, you have, um, Portuguese, you have Japanese, you have Chinese, you have Korean. Um, everybody in this whole big Pacific realm always is kind of migrating all the time. So we are a veritable mixing bowl of cultures and languages at any one time of the year. But that that gives it more of an international feel than places that you know like San Francisco and, and New York that actually have an Italian section and a, and a China section. No, it's you go anywhere and you'll see an Italian restaurant right beside a Chinese restaurant, right beside a plate lunch, local Hawaiian kind of food place, all in one stretch. Here, it feels more international than it does anywhere else in the country.
0: I also noticed that it's very expensive out there because I had a friend go out there and he said that a gallon of milk was like seven bucks
1: uh $7 and 90 something cents at current. Uh gas is sitting uh, right around 4.20. <laughs> Wait, is and that is,
0: uh, it, is that unleaded?
1: Yeah, that's unleaded 87 octane.
0: Oh my god. Yeah, my, my Jeep takes premium because the the previous owner decided to just use premium, use premium, yeah. use premium. So I continue to use premium and it's I'm complaining that it's a little over $3 a gallon.
1: Well, now keep in mind, Hawaii, when it comes to trade, is treated like a foreign country, and that's because one of the reasons that we're so expensive over here has to do with something called the Jones Act. Okay. Okay. You ever heard of the Jones Act?
0: I, I have not, but apparently it makes your Taco Bell super expensive.
1: Yeah, because what it does is it, it's it's a <clears throat> it's a maritime commerce law. Okay, so this is controls how ships move between the U.S. ports. And ships built in the U.S., ships built in foreign ports, coming from foreign ports. It's, it's also called the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. But what it does is it prohibits foreign vessels from going to two domestic United States ports back to back. In other words, they have to go to a United States port, go out to international waters again, and then come back to United States ports. Imagine... If your entire state is made up of counties that are individual islands, how expensive it would be to do trade with foreign countries because the 88 nautical miles between Oahu and Maui cannot be crossed until they go, I think it's 260-something miles south to the Marshallese Islands from Oahu and then come 260-something miles back north just to come to Maui. So they can't go port to port, therefore making trade and products and stuff here in an island state cheaper, all because of this act that the United States set up, that they will not make any loopholes for us here.
0: Uh, I uh, uh, I mean, you figure you'd want to make uh your your uh, uh your citizens happy but i mean considering who we have as a president right now nobody's happy um except for dumb people you know right. yeah that's just that's just the way it is but now let's let's uh, let me ask you another question here uh let's go back to radio for just a second okay um the life of a dj is not a fun life most of the time uh no. you are you are not uh paid very well I mean, let's be honest here. Let's break it down for people who want to get into radio, all right? Because at this point, would you, as a radio host, would you suggest that they, if somebody wants to get in, they just start a podcast?
1: Actually, it's kind of mixed right now, and I'll tell you why. Um, a couple of articles have been coming out in the last couple of weeks that have said, "Is the podcasting bubble bursting?" and and what they're talking about is is major funding sources. And uh, organizations like uh, public relations and uh, marketing firms that used to set up podcasting that was brand-specific podcasting, you know, Uh they're noticing that the the listenership numbers and the engagement have been really steadily going down because so many people are trying to get in on the act at the same time. Now, I can tell you from a historical standpoint – this happened to radio as well. There was a massive influx of people that wanted to to jump on when the FM slash stereo age took over from the AM bands. And, and everybody was like, these are cheaper to maintain stations. We can build them anywhere. They're easier to get licensed. Oh my God, let's do radio. Let's do radio. Come on, everybody radio with me. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but they, they all got together. They all started forming all of these mom and pop stations across the country. And of course... Oversaturation happened, so it it, it led to this period where all these stations, starting back in the late 1980s, started getting bought up by banking groups and investment groups, and that led, after the Deregulation Act of 1996 with Bill Clinton, to organizations like – I want to say Clear Channel was a good one, Uh, Infinity Radio that later became CBS, that was another one, Cumulus, uh, uh, Beasley Communications. These were all kind of investor group-funded communication supergroups. And after the Deregulation Act of 1996, they started buying more and more and more stations and running those stations over less and less resources. It was the age of voice tracking. And that came in at the beginning of 2000s. And what that meant that as a DJ in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I was at the time of the 2000s, I was also a DJ in like 14 other cities across the United States thanks to this technology where I could record like I was actually there in that studio hundreds of miles away. And then it would play back the show in a normal kind of playback time for listeners, and they wouldn't know difference and, so but now you but player, you
0: wouldn't but you wouldn't get paid for being in 14 different cities you would just get paid, paid for a doing percentage. the percentage oh you did
1: yeah but i'm talking low percentages so okay uh standard dj salary at that time just for like a four-hour shift uh monday through friday through uh let's say a medium market i honestly around that time you could probably make it between you know, 30 and 35 thousand dollars a year, And that's not counting things like uh, special remote appearance, uh, uh, extra fees that you would charge clientele so that you would appear on their premises uh, and things like that. Uh, commercial usages, uh, even going to television and doing things, you can get extra bumps and pay in that. But base salary, around that time, <clears throat> my salary was around, yeah, about $30,000 a year. I was on the, 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 the very low end scale of a full-time radioer um radio or oh god. uh anyway
0: you sound old
1: i do i do but back in my day when the voice tracking came up that salary was reduced per market to like a, a tiny percent so let's say for my regular charlotte job i would be earning about thirty thousand dollars a year and then when i added like uh, columbus uh ohio and uh columbia south carolina each one of those markets because of their size different. So I would earn an additional $2,000 a year just doing voice tracking for Columbus. And I would earn an extra $4,000 a year from doing Columbia, South Carolina. Those are not full-time salaries, but it is just enough. If you're in entertainment and you're doing radio and voice tracking, you're like, yeah, sure. I'll take that extra money. That sounds good. But that means that what you're doing is city for city, you are doing the entire full-time job of somebody that lives in that city, that goes to those places, that talks to that community. You're doing all of that thinking for a fraction of the cost, and you're adding and compounding on top of that all of the other markets that you service. So it it got really, really impractical, and people thought that that was the death of personality radio, and that's what podcasting was supposed to save us from, but Ron... Here's the thing. When it comes to who wants to get in and how they want to get in, I'm going to say something very odd. Get in where you can get in because everything is going to change. And in the next five years, who knows what the podcasting landscape is even going to look like.
0: So you think if you can get in as a po- – like getting into radio is uh, – uh, around here is impossible, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But so you're saying basically if all you can do is get a podcast, start your podcast, and get going with it.
1: Yes, because this is the thing that I learned. <clears throat> radio is repetition. You have to practice constantly. You have to drill constantly. You have to read and, and research constantly. And until you developed, develop those instincts, you do not, under any circumstances, you do not barely rank as a good on-air personality because people want interesting people to listen to. And if you have nothing interesting to talk about, no one will listen to you. But you have to learn how to properly present that stuff. You have to, to, to do things like consider what it's like for somebody else to hear the things that you're about to discuss and what kind of ramifications that would make on them. But when it comes to training, podcasting is really convenient because you can make as many mistakes as you want and nobody will come along and fire you. And better than that, you can find qualified people. You can find other podcasters that are way more community-minded and into networking that you can send your show to, and they will give you pointers. They will give you tips. They will tell you things like how to distribute the show, where to distribute the show. There's a lot of wealth of information in it. And in my early days of radio, that was the greatest thing that I liked, is despite the competition, despite the, oh, God, you're the new kid. I better, better do whatever I can to secure my job from you. That, that attitude's always been in well, whatever market or job you work in, but the thing is about radio is it was a little different, and guys that would see somebody trying to improve themselves, they were instantly into, hey, let me show you something cool. And I mean, I can I can honestly say that I would not be anywhere near the ability that I have now if it wasn't for like seven or eight different DJs that took the time to say, oh my god, no. I'm going to help you because you really want to improve. I see that in you and and I'm gonna help you improve. And in podcasting now, like those olden days of radio, you have that kind of communal spirit where people will be like, that sounds good, but try this. Or that was terrible, have you thought about this? And it's all constructive and it's all done in, in an atmosphere of everybody wants to see everybody improve. But then? That's a small kind of growth sector that's going to maintain podcasting uh, despite all of the influx of everybody trying to do one now. So, at the end of the day, if you put up a podcast and you network that podcast with other podcasters that want to help you improve, you're on the path of good. If you also throw your hat into the ring, and then instantly try to come become competitive of saying, I've never done this before, and I want 1,500 downloads in the first month, you are going to be met with disappointment, you are going to be met with constant failure, and you're going to feel horrible about yourself.
0: Well, I'm going to feel horrible about myself right now, because we're going to have to cut you off for just a second, because we're going to have to take a break. But when we come back, more about the podcast bubble exploding and why I think podcasting is going to go farther than radio ever did You're listening to the Ron Show, and we'll be right back.
1: I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom,
3: but a little over a year ago, we realized she couldn't take care of herself without our help. And well, how could I not be there for her? I had no idea how hard it
1: would be and just what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and even for me, ways to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics that got me started, but also information about the hurdles I was facing in this new role. I could even connect with experts and hear from others who had been in my place. I know this road we're on isn't
3: an easy one. Really happy to have the extra help for her and for me. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org/caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. This message is brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
4: This is Scientific American's 60 Second Science. I'm Lucy Wong. When a friend comes to you after a stressful day, how do you comfort them? Do you let them rant? Do you pour them a glass of wine? Those could work, but a new study finds that a very effective technique is also simple and easy. Hugging. Michael Murphy is a psychology postdoc at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He wanted to know if people who received hugs regularly could handle stress and conflict better.
3: Individuals who report perceiving the availability of a network of supportive individuals tend to show better adaptation when faced with stress.
4: But just because you have a support network doesn't mean that you definitely feel that support.
3: So some researchers have argued that many of the behaviors we use to support others who are stressed might actually be counterproductive because these behaviors uh, might unintentionally communicate to others that they're not competent to manage stress.
4: Murphy and his team interviewed 404 men and women every evening for two weeks.
3: During these interviews, the participants were asked... A simple yes or no question whether somebody had hugged them that day and a simple yes or no question of whether they had experienced conflict or tension with somebody that day. They also were asked questions about their social interactions, uh, how many social interactions they had that day, and uh, responded to questions about negative and positive mood states.
4: And the researchers found that individuals who experienced a conflict were not as negatively affected if they received a hug that day, as were participants who experienced conflict and didn't get a hug. Murphy and his team also saw that people who received a hug didn't carry the negative effect to the next day, while those who did not receive a hug would. The findings are in the journal *Plaus 1. Murphy does include this caveat.
3: So our findings should not be taken as evidence that people should just start hugging anyone and everyone who seems distressed. The hug from one's boss at work or a stranger on the street, that could be viewed as neither consensual nor positive.
4: The idea is to relieve stress. Not add to it. Thanks for listening. For Scientific American 60 Second Science, I'm Lucy Wong.
2: Hi, I'm Layla Ali. I might be undefeated in professional boxing, but there's one problem even I can't fight alone. Childhood hunger. Over 17 million kids in America may not know where their next meal is coming from. That's one in five children. Yet billions of pounds of surplus food produced right here in America just get thrown out every year. That's more than enough to feed every last hungry child. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to hungry kids before it goes to waste. But they can't do it without your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank by going to feedingamerica.org. Together we can knock out hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. To help solve hunger in your community and to find your local food bank, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
0: And we're back. Uh, thanks for tuning in here to the Ron Pertee Show. If you're just tuning in a little bit late because you just got in your car and you turned on that radio, I'm Ron Pertee. I'm the host of the Ron Pertee Show. It's kind of fitting, isn't it? And all roads lead to Ron.World, my Patreon, my uh, PayPal donation button. If you don't like rolling monthly things or rolling things in general, you can also pick up merch there. You can also listen to past episodes all sorts of cool stuff. My Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of other cool stuff is there too. Be sure to check that out. Uh, with me right now, uh, we were just talking about Sh- – Shaggy Jenkins is with me. We were talking about the podcast bubble bursting. And I said before we went to the break that I thought that the, even though the podcast bubble will burst, it's still going to be bigger than radio. And here's my, here's my reason why. Is you can't get – and not everybody can get syndicated into big markets. Okay, not everyone's going to get a deal with Sirius. Not everyone's going to be that have like a satellite radio type thing. Everything is going to be on the Internet now. And like, okay, let's say I'm driving from state to state, but I like listening to the current market that I'm in. Well, oh, well, when you start driving down that road, the farther you get away from the signal, the less you're going to be able to hear them. But when it comes to a podcast, you know, especially one like, say, Joe Rogan, who goes to two and a half hours that's going to keep going and you're not going to lose the signal on that that's a nationwide kind of uh and it maintains an anonymity for location if that makes any sense
1: kinda kinda
0: i mean that's why i think that uh, eventually i mean the podcast bubble may burst but what will happen is that the cream will rise to the top and those people will stick stick around i even think i even think that the youtube bubble is going to burst and it's not going to recover from anything it's not going to recover because i have a feeling that what's going to happen is is you're going to have the parent company or whoever is setting it up google whatever is going to start alphabet is going to start saying hey you know what we're going to cut back how much we pay you even more you know for the the, the top tier creators and those top tier creators are going to take off and you're going to be left with people who get a couple hundred views on their videos and can never get to the point where they're um, uh, where they're monetized and they can make money. So they're just going to give up and they're going to quit. Whereas podcasting, like I you know, everybody can still do it no matter what. But the ones that are the really, really, really good ones are the ones that are going to be the profitable ones. They're going to make money. And you always hear people like Stern talk about how, oh, you've got to get into radio before you can do anything else if you're going to be a broadcaster. And I don't believe that. I don't think – I think some people – Not everybody, but some people have the talent to just sit sit behind a microphone and just go for it and not have. I mean, they need to learn some technical aspects. Sure. You know, Mm -hmm. but uh, that's what uh, that's what uh, other people helping you out is for. That's what having, um, you know, a a network of people to help you walk through things. But I don't think that everybody has to go into radio to get into podcasting.
1: Well, see, look, that's just it. Radio is inherently Difficult to get into especially after the um, Well, I, I had mentioned it before the big uh, Voice tracking thing that took over in the early 2000s. It is incredibly Incredibly competitive to get into radio, but the thing is is that radio Back in olden times when it was more decentralized and all these uh, con- Conglomerations came together and started owning every station, television and radio across the the country, people like iHeartMedia, Sinclair, Tribune, um, CBS Radio, these companies that came into existence, uh, before them, what you would typically do is you would start your radio days in some sort of backwater, small AM, low-powered FM station that was well off of everybody's beaten paths because those markets were always hungry for talent, and yeah, they typically didn't pay well, but they did offer easily a chance for you to get a full-time air shift. And when you get a full-time air shift on one station, no matter where that station is, that becomes kind of like um, your trade-up job. You, you you literally go from this moment of um, <clears throat> working at a small market to going to a bigger market and saying, hey – you got to give me a job because I have X amount of experience in said small market. In other words, you remember that whole joke we had in high school about how am I supposed to get two to three years experience if nobody will hire me to get the two to three years experience? Right. One of the good things is that a lot of radio broadcasters, when it comes to considering hiring new talent, they're taking into consideration how long people have had their podcast and how much downloads those podcasts have. Oh, and what kind of audience those have versus the traditional, you know, stuff that we um, had to deal with in radio of, oh, I need experience, but I can't get experience and uh, I need to do um, um, all these things in smaller markets just to possibly get to a bigger market with podcasting. You can grow your skills. You can do it right out of your house and – If you can grow it large enough, it's actually a legitimate calling card to get you into uh, terrestrial, traditional broadcasting.
0: But what about when it comes to satellite and stuff like that? Because it seems like that satellite, and I know it comes down, always comes back to money, but satellite seems to be where the
1: money really is. Yeah, not so much. I mean, the thing is, a satellite is a good concept, but... Look at what happened to Satellite. We had two companies that started off very aggressively, very strong. Um, one of them eventually got bought out by Clear Channel Communications, that would be XM. after it was facing some subscription base and, of course, billing and, and financial problems. It, it joined with a traditional radio broadcaster in Clear Channel, and then, just a couple of years after that, the their competition in Sirius... Satellite had their own troubles and then the terrestrial radio-owned XM bought out Sirius. In other words, if you want to get into satellite broadcasting, there's one and only really one game in town. So what's the point of trying to make it to that level?
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. And, and uh, I, speaking of innovations, when it comes mm-hmm. to entertainment... Let's let's talk just a second. We talked about Stickam before. Uh, let's let's talk just a little bit about how you and I and we weren't alone. I'm not saying that we were, were the ones that built it from the ground up, but we were there in the days of early video streaming before YouTube started allowing people to stream, before Twitch became a thing. We were over at uh, Now Live and Stickam respectively. Then I left Now Live, came over to Stickam, and we met because of their, uh, do I call it biased uh, South by Southwest contest? Oh, well, let's just say that it was
1: clearly they were not going for uh, truly hosted people. I mean, truly talented people. And and this is why I say that, because here's here's something very funny to me. I I love taking my daughter out to movies. Right. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, you know how, like, every so often you see something and you're like, oh, my God. So. Back in 2007, me and you were in a competition to host a special Stickham booth at uh, South by Southwest, right? right? Right. And we were in competition with another guy who was a foreign personality. And of course, he went to the LA Stickham studios trying to heavily get himself into this competition. But he was voted out in the next round of the competition because I survived one round past you, me and him were both voted out in the same round. His name is Flula Borg, and if you know anything about Hollywood, movies, <laughs> Flula is a very talented voiceover artist who was in, as of late, movies like Ferdinand. So
0: and, and he's on Conan. I'm
1: he's on, public. and he's on Conan all the time. Yes. Falula was in the very same competition that me and you were, and me and him both lost in the same round. And it's like, are you kidding me?
0: Yeah, and then the best part though, what people don't seem, to, what people seem to forget, is that the winner of the contest was one of those typical little goth girls with the eye makeup and the uh, uh, the big hair. And who had uh, curbs in all the right places, and when we watched the South by Southwest footage, when we watched the the stream, um she didn't ask any of the bands or anybody else any questions. She just sat there. She was technically speaking, she was just the eye candy.
1: Yeah. It was rather depressing for we everybody would, we in would, the competition.
0: We, we would not have fit in because we would have been in there and we would have had questions for these people. And they would have looked at us like, well, who are you? And why, yeah. why should we talk to you? And, like, because I'm, I, okay, I, dare I say I'm a respected journalist uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. Because, okay, I, I may not be as politically savvy as you are, even though for some reason you continue to bring me back on your show as a correspondent. Uh, but when it comes to entertainment, you know, pop culture, comic books, movies, TV shows, music, all that stuff—that's where I'm a Viking. Yeah. And so I think I guess I'm an—I I guess you could say I'm an entertainment journalist, if we can go that way.
1: Yeah, I would uh, say an edu turn journal an journalist. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we'll
0: go. We'll stuff. go with that. We'll make up stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and if somebody like me would have sat there. I would have known who these people are. Because let's be real honest here. You didn't know half of these bands, did you?
1: Um, actually, yeah, because I worked in an indie rock station way back in the 90s, so I knew indie bands that eventually formed the labels that those guys were on. Right, but the bands
0: themselves, like the really crappy, um, whatever they would call emo at the time. because like, it, it, It's like they had a, a, a factory. Oh, you're talking about scene music. Yeah, it's it's like, yeah, okay, it's like, because I remember, and this is, I hate sounding like an old man, but I have to. I remember back in the late 90s when the emo scene really broke, and it yeah. wasn't these bands like My Chemical Romance with Eyeliner and uh, uh, all this other stuff, and you hear people saying, well, and now I, there's a, uh, a YouTuber that, uh, this is going to make me sound so bad, but I follow her on Instagram and Snapchat because I find her attractive. But that's it. Mm. But she's always posting really suggestive stuff, so okay, whatever. Um, And she posted one time about going to an emo night at a bar. And I'm like, okay, I gotta see what she talks about this. And she's talking about bands that I've never heard of. I'm like, well, no, that's, no, because emo for me was bands like Sunny Day Real Estate, Early Jimmy Eat World, um, you know, The the Get Up Kids, and stuff like that. I hate
1: to say it, but Emo for me was typo negative. That's goth, sir. That is the dark, deep Peter uh, Steele with his Playgirl spread. Yeah, but those bands were the bands that were ahead of the bands that you just mentioned. So for me, being an older guy, when people started talking about emo and, and this gothic fashion came back, I'm looking at them going, you don't look like the type that would listen to NWO. Okay, okay, but still, but still, I mean, like,
0: my point was groups made. Groups
1: like, when it comes to emo, I'm thinking like typo negative. I'm thinking, and on the other end of the spectrum, uh, people like um, Blue Monday, uh, Blue Tuesday, uh, Morrissey, and The Cure.
0: Well, okay, well, you please don't on my program, please don't put Morrissey and The Cure in the same sentence because they don't like each other. So at all. Uh, so, I would love if somebody would
1: sponsor a cage match,
0: yeah, and I so I kind of don't want, and I'm more of a cure fan than I am a Morrissey fan, so just gonna
1: sh- oh, you're in good company, sir yes, just yeah, help.
0: so I just kind of yeah, but uh, but no, and that's like the, you know, uh I just uh. I mean that the whole thing was was set up from the word go. They allowed us to proceed because to make a make it look like it was a legitimate contest. But then when it came down to it, it's it, they turned it into a popularity contest. Uh, and I think what they did after that was they kind of uh, let you and I on the on the uh, on the main page when we were live as like a consolation. But in turn, that also gave us. Uh, Tens of thousands of viewers, un- yeah. t- until that happened.
1: Oh yeah, because I mean, it's it. Look, I know this is going to seem a little weird, but me and you were like Me Too before Me Too. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. with well, maybe
0: common sense. Hashtag common sense. Well, that's um, all the Me Too movement
1: is. It's saying, hey, women as people too. Please treat them like people and by the way if you've done some terribly slimy things in the past just because you're a guy doesn't mean we're going to absolve you of guilt
0: right and what people if people don't know what we're talking about we're talking about the john hawk incident you can look it up we're not going to get too deep into it because it's pretty it's pretty uh uh
1: heavy well um, at least give the basics uh, the, the basic guy, yeah the, the he basic was on yeah, go an ahead. entertainment page with us okay yeah. so he, we, we got the consolation prize of going to this main page, and we started looking at the other programs and networking with them. We, we actually formed our own little network for we a did. while with us and about 23 other shows. But um, <clears throat> the thing was is on that front page, they also started featuring this – well, you were talking about these emo scene kids that came out in the early 2000s. Uh, one of them was by the name of John Hawk, and he was kind of one of those – eye candy for girls and androgynous guys kind of personalities. Now, his show was nothing but kind of a rip-off of shows like Jackass and things like that where he would sit there, he would talk in a very casual vlogger style and then proceed to do something stupid for views. One of these nights on his I'm gonna do anything stupid for views, he decided to roofie and rape a woman on live camera and the network refused to boot him or his show after us, that would be me, you, and about 21 other people, came forward and said, Oh my God, do you realize that the same network that you put our shows on, our we're trying to make these into respectable brand shows, you're putting us up with an on-camera rapist, and you're not even punishing him. Oh, and then the investigation got started. And they were stonewalling the investigators.
0: Yeah, they would actually... They wouldn't let the investigators have the footage.
1: Yeah. So that that kind of set all of us off. And we decided as a group that we were going to do the first ever massive... We're going to shutter all of our shows in reaction to this. And in one day, we took out, like... God, it it ended up being like 30-something shows eventually joined from both the UK, the United States. Um, All of these shows made public announcements of why they were leaving the network as their last show and then closed down their accounts. And the bad thing was, is even in the aftermath of all of these artists coming together and saying, we know what we saw, you know your role in it, own up to it and make this right, in the aftermath of all of that, we canceled all of our shows, and the site still kept functioning. And his show was still on for almost six months. His show was still on, and then the the site itself still kept functioning almost two years after that event.
0: Well, I remember one of my last broadcast shows because uh, if I don't know if we've mentioned this to people, but a lot of it was um, streaming video and and things like that and i did more of an interview show and i played some music and i chatted with people you basically streamed your radio show uh from from q um and and people we had other people like lee mills i think and stuff like that um mm-hmm. I, I, I can't believe i just remember that name i pulled it completely out of midair um and so we all had our different things but we were all similar in in and in, in the same way and we ended up uh uh, just kind of, I think my last show, uh, I had a stripper go on a pole in a bikini. Now, if people, I'll actually, I actually have a link to it. I think I sent it to you recently from Sticky Drama. And Sticky Drama was calling out Stickam um, for pulling me from the front page. For having this woman who had clothes on on a stripper pole. Yeah, because they they were like stick games trying to hide their past. So they pull me down, who isn't doing anything wrong. It's mildly suggestive at best. And yet they let John Hawk rape a girl on camera and continue going because he was pulling in even more numbers than all of
1: us. Yeah, well, let's not forget that they were already kind of edgy towards me because in those days, that's where the queue of the day was actually starting to take off and become more political. So they were like, hey, you know, could you kind of keep it light and not talk about issues? And I'm going, have you seen the other BS you put up? No. Right, right, right. And then a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the,
0: the we have all, I mean, plus, and I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead here, but uh, you had uh, people like Ronch Fox who were very, were way, over the line when it came to content. Um, Audio content, not like, you know, there's no uh, having uh, intercourse with animals or anything on it.
1: Yeah, there was never any lewd or obscene scenes shown. It was all dialect.
0: Right, right. And we had, uh, you know, you had him, uh, and I think he rode underneath the radar enough that they didn't really mess with him, but he also had the one in that we all wanted, and that was Jen Reynolds who uh, kind of seemed to have an end with Stickam and uh, kind of helped push us towards the, uh, the the main page as
1: well, I think. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, her role cannot be denied because she was the one that set up the meeting between me in the L.A. offices. I actually went to L.A. to meet them. She's the one that set up the, the meeting between me and the directors of the Stickam front page that shored up me being able to go to the front page. They actually... They actually had a meeting with me before they brought me on.
0: Well that's that's they didn't ask me anything, they just put me on because apparently they just can they just know talent, man. They know talent.
1: Yeah, well that was always funny to me because like during uh, our days of being, you know, co shows on there, I was always like, Why is it that guys like me jump through so many extra hurdles and, and and guys like an actual rapist had no hurdles, no controls, and no oversight.
0: Because it's, 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 it's hard to explain, I guess, because you don't see, okay, you know what? He is um, a, a, a prototypical hot topic person. I'll, we'll just, let's just, let's just call it what it is. You know, everybody, when you think a hot topic and you think of like a generic hot topic person.
1: Oh yeah. He looks like the end cap display. He,
0: Oh, he definitely does. He looks like the, when you go to their website, he, he could be a model there. With his big black spiky hair and his eyeliner and his painted fingernails, and uh, we got you from North Carolina and me from the Midwest, who are just like, um, I, can I? I'll just comb my hair if you want, and you and you <laughs> yeah, and you you saying I'll just put a hat on to cover my no hair. Exactly. It's
1: like uh, this is this is the concessions that we will make for you, yeah. but otherwise we're we're talkers, we're show broadcasters, but. The thing that, that that still gets me about all of that is, you know, now as a broadcaster and now in the aftermath of of, of Hollywood finally having this awakening that they needed to have for decades, it's it's kind of a, a whole brave new world that I feel really prepared for because of that whole incident that happened with Stickam. It's 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 now I feel more attuned to watching other men's behavior and making sure that I'm checking their behavior and like, hey, 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 buddy, that's crossing a line a lot more than my southern roots would have led me to be, which is keep your nose down, mind your business.
0: Right, right, right. And and it's funny to see how things progressed because I know you didn't have a problem because you still had your job, Uh, but I struggled for a while when it came to what I was going to do, and uh, eventually I started making movies. And what's funny about all this, though, is once a broadcaster, always a broadcaster, because even though I started making movies, I'm still making movies today. And I, st- I love doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. Here I am still putting out content in a broadcast uh, 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 broadcasting style. I couldn't think of words because they escaped me because my brain is is broken. Um but, and I think that that's, if that's really in you, it's going to be in you. And that's where you and I were, were differed from him because he was just doing it for hits. We were doing it
1: to put out content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, especially because I was like, I'm from the 50th state now. I'm originally from the South. I am learning all of these cool things about music, or culture, about the world that I really just wanted to show people, oh my God. Look at all of this cool stuff that humanity is capable of. I found it all on an island called Maui. Right, right, right.
0: So it's just it's all it all comes down at the end of the day to to what you want to put out. Shaggy, we're getting close to the end of the program. We got
1: not too much longer here. Where can people find you? Oh, uh, easily! If you want to uh, listen to the show, just go to shaggyjenkins.com. There you can find our links to Spotify, Stitcher, and stuff. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, at shaggy live. That's all the things that you can find.
0: It's pretty simple. It's straightforward. It's cut and dry. Uh, folks, don't forget to head over to ron.world. All of my links are there to Patreon, PayPal, uh, and all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, it's uh, yeah. We'll be we'll be here next
1: week. Yeah,
0: um, it's gonna. Oh, be and don't
1: forget, catch Ron on the Shaggy Jenkins show every week as he's our Midwest correspondent. I am, and it's
0: currently snowing out. But I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, it's been uh, it's been one heck of a show. I want to quick say happy 30th anniversary to Mystery Science Theater 3000. And don't forget to feed the fish. We'll see you guys next week.